Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast, a multimedia project intended to highlight the careers of leaders of color across the healthcare industry. Students, early professionals, and the community at large can expect to gain valuable, unapologetic insight on the career journeys of individuals whose lived experience and personal mission has been centered in advancing health equity. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Healthcare Hustle Podcast. Today, we are joined by Michael Whittier, Director of Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at UCLA Health in Los Angeles, California. Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, privilege. Mike, really excited to have you on the show. Um, first question we'd love to ask is just better understand your journey, your origin, and how you came to be where you're at currently, um, You know how you got into healthcare. If you feel, just kind of expand on that a little bit and tell us more about yourself. And that's a that's a long answer, uh, but I'm gonna I'm keep it short and sweet. Uh, originally from St. Louis, Missouri, specifically, I grew up in Wellston. Um, went to high school at Webster Groves High School, right? Everybody asks that in St. Louis, uh, but. Uh, I, I think those identities and the, the fluidity of where I come from really is a testament to where I am today. And so growing up in Wellston, I mean, we kind of see it right. It's a, a community that had a, a rich history that over time uh, just uh, was was put in the margins and it didn't matter anymore, whether it's factories leaving, whether it's uh, the workforce and working class leaving, whatever the case may be. Um, and so what, what, what once was a thriving community uh, is now faced with a lot of the health inequities that we see today. Uh, and why does that matter? Uh, because that's my story. And so when we talk about health inequities, it's like, that's my that's my story. Uh, the, the, the reason why I do this work is because it's, it's connected to my humanity. Uh, so, um, I mean, uh, I got two, three big families uh, that exist in St. Louis. Uh, my my family on my stepdad's side, Webster Groves, uh, my my family uh, from Wellston, my mom's side, and then my dad's family. Um, and um, we have, we, my grandfather founded a church in North St. Louis that's still there today, 40 year anniversary, Emanuel Temple, right in uh, Walnut Park community. Um, and that's where, you know, I grew up there too. So you talk about uh, these different communities uh, and what they have uh, really done for influence in my life uh, is invaluable. And so my story is that stereotypical black male story is uh, despite, you know, having an amazing family, uh, my mom, you know, went through a lot. Uh, grew up, you know, there was times where we were homeless. Uh, Karen's house right in North St. Louis, uh, you know, provided a lot of support to my mom. Um, that, that, that shelter, I don't think, even no longer exists. Uh, in addition to that, you know, struggling with, you know, crime, violence, drugs, all those things that exist in communities, uh, one of the things that was a highlight uh, for me is going to, you know, North Central uh, Clinic uh, right there, the uh, county clinic. We called it Pine Line Clinic uh, before uh, it kind of rebranded itself. But some of my best experiences, uh, our most memorable positive experiences with any professional uh, was in that clinic. Um, and so I always knew I was going to healthcare. I said I was going to medical school uh, as a kid. 
Um, and so you kind of fast forward through, uh, you know, all the various things that happen from a childhood to adulthood. Uh, but in short, uh, got to college, finished college, uh, got into the, the medical school I wanted to go to and decided not to go uh, after a deferment year, played college football, uh, wanted to take a year to be an adult uh, for the first time in St. Louis, uh, and came back to St. Louis, started working at Mercy Hospital, uh, had uh, some mentorship and guidance where a mentor said, Mike, you want to be a doctor, you don't want to practice medicine. Uh, didn't know what she meant at the time, but as that mentorship went along, she basically explained my purpose without me even knowing it, meaning I want to have macro level change. I want to provide uh, wellness and opportunities to thrive uh, for communities, uh, but I may not want to do that in one-on-one -on -one interventions. I may want to do that at a macro level, leaning into some of my skills and gifts. Uh, so she can convinced me to start uh, my MHA and executive program at Mizzou uh, the semester before I was supposed to go to school uh, and fell in love with the program right around the time the Affordable Care Act just passed. Uh, and so seeing that kind of play out in real time and understanding the purpose of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and what it was intended to do and knowing the future of healthcare, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And so fell in love with healthcare leadership and that brought me to the administrative side and that this journey is even a whole different beast because it didn't start off as equity, diversity, inclusion, but you know, here we are. Man, um, that is again, extremely, extremely humble. So thank you uh, for sharing um, a little bit about your background. Some things that really stood out to me is just, you know, institutions are important. Um, you know, in the neighborhood, in the built environments that we come from. And so it's dope to be able to hear you say, you know, that clinic, you know, that was the first place that you had kind of a glimpse of, oh, this is what professional life or what this, you know, experience could be for me. Um, can you talk a little bit more just about where you were between like football, medical school, and knowing like you wanted to do something else? Because what I'm hearing from you is a lot of drive, a lot of passion, and a lot of commitment. Because all of those three things, these different pathways, takes a lot of work. Yeah, I, I think it, it really started going back to childhood, those experiences. And I just knew what I didn't want. It's like, man, growing up in Wellston, growing up in Walnut Park, growing up uh, Baden, seeing kind of all these different things kind of play out, uh, but then also having exposure to different things at an early age. You know, mom put me in baseball when I was like seven years old. Nobody was in sports in my family. Uh, that that was fun for me. That was like my stress reliever. Um, and then, uh, you know, my, my stepdad's family being in Webster Groves, uh, I, one of my cousins was just like, uh, he want to go play football. And so he's going to play. He was about five years older than me. I was like eight or nine at the time. Uh, I went home. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm going to play football. <laughs> and I, it, was, it, was, it was no option to say yes or no. I told them <laughs> I'm going to play. Um, and so I went with my cousin, went to go sign up. Kirkwood Webster, JFL, uh, they still have uh, some, of, some of that program exists in a little bit different format. Uh, but started playing and I was really good. 
Um, I mean, really, really good. Our team, our, our youth team, I think we lost one game in like six years. Um, and and so now they got, you know, documentaries on these type of teams and stuff. We would have been on that documentary or we we would have had a documentary. Um, my cousin Rayon Simmons, he uh, he set the, the Missouri Russian record at CBC. He played on our team. Coney Ely played in the Super Bowl played on our team. So we we had some killers on the football field, uh, but that really was my space to escape the realities that was happening. Um, I mean, seeing drug overdoses, seeing, you know, gunshot victims, seeing people die right in front of you. Uh, that was a reality for me. Um, and, you know, that trauma, that reality uh, is an every, everyday existence. Uh, so sports was my escape. Sports was that therapy for me. Uh, and so when you talk about education and in the midst of all of that, my mom was like, oh, you ain't going nowhere until you're done with the school. Uh, and then if I didn't have any homework, she was making up homework for me. <laughs> so it was one of those things where School was always important. And in order for me to even get to the things I wanted to do, I had to do those things that I may not wanted to do. But school always came easy. I was always the, the talkative kid, but it was mainly because uh, I was bored in the classroom. And so uh, I did all my work, but I still got those stereotypical black boy marks because I was just bored and people didn't know what to do with it um, until I had a, a, a black woman teacher tell my mom, he's like, now Mike is a, a gifted kid. Uh, he should be, you know, doing something else. And, that's, and this time I'm in Normandy School District. And so mom put me in Webster Grove School District um, and that, you know, kind of changed a little bit, but still same thing, bored, getting derogatory marks. But now I'm the only black kid in the class sometimes. So it was a little bit different. But now as sports kind of came to the center of my life, now I got like kids that are on my sports team or at my school and stuff. And so it allowed me to find that community uh, and not feel like an outlier. Um, and then I had a bunch of family. Uh, my stepdad's family is huge. I had a bunch of family in the school district as well. So uh, I started to like sort of find myself while still existing as this outlier uh, between sports, academics, and just being, you know, me. Uh, and so it kind of just grew a life of its own where before I knew it, you know, playing, you know, freshman as a freshman varsity football, basketball and a, at a really good school uh, at the time uh, we were, you know, decorated in both football and basketball with, you know, me coming in playing quarterback on a, a football team that was coming off, you know, state championships. Coming talk to that a talk, man. Talk yeah, that talk. Uh, yeah, coming, <laughs> coming, coming into a basketball program that, you know, was building on a legacy uh, set, you know, by some some uh, other, you know, players coming through the system. But uh, by the time I graduated high school for basketball, we, we never lost a home game, never lost a conference game. Uh, we ended top 15 in the country, won a state championship. Uh, my best friend now trains NBA players. He, I think, leads the one of the records in the NCAA for three-point uh, 
uh, shooting percentage. On the football side, I said I left the school with all the passing uh, records a quarterback I have. Um, and, you know, going into my senior year preseason, All-American, all those different things is celebrated. And so that like gave me the open door to college. But even even when I got to college, I didn't know what a college was. I, I mean, even going on tours, going on visits as an athlete, you still don't really get it. Um, and so um, there was some differences there that I had to learn really quick. But all in all, all of those experiences leading up to college, uh, all of the discipline, resiliency that was needed, the perseverance to kind of conquer through a lot of the life challenges, the trauma, the things happening in community, in my community, the things happening in my family, um, it, it, it took a lot. And so I think all of those things that were required of me that my mom is still like, hey, get your schoolwork done first. Uh, you got to work hard in order to excel anywhere. Uh, that set the path for being able to balance being pre-med, being a student athlete, but then also just owning your vision and owning your destiny. Uh, and so that it, it, like I said, it evolved over time. It got more and more sophisticated to the point now I can define my purpose a little bit more um, and really say this is what I've been put on this earth to do. But the reality is it, it didn't happen overnight. It was a process uh, and it's still a process. I can't say it's perfect, but I enjoy it. Uh, and um, it's allowing me to have an impact and an influence and be gifted with the, the platform to do that in my role as a professional and my personal uh, identities as well. And I, I mean, I can't do nothing but thank God for that privilege because that's, you know, my blessings that have been bestowed upon me manifesting themselves uh, to me being who I am today. Wow, man. I'm not even gonna lie. I kind of knew a little bit about, you know, your background as far as sports, sports side of things, but this, this kind of um, shed light on a lot of things that I was oblivious to. And I I can honestly say like me personally, I'm a product of, of sports and that has affected my life, but it just, I think, you know, as far as it coming from somebody in your position, uh, it speaks volumes as to not only, you know, sports opening doors, but also contributing to your personal growth, um, whether it be integrity or teamwork or just, you know, understanding that any, any result is a, is, is a product of the, the training or the effort that goes into it. Um, with that in mind, I'm just kind of curious, you know, as you as you transition from Jackson and Mizzou and even onto your professional career early on, what were some of those things that you looked for as far as a job or probably the thought process behind the jobs that you pursued or, or went after early on in your career? Or was it more so unintentional seeking knowledge? Just kind of walk us through that. Yeah, it, I would say it's the latter, right? It's that it was an unintentional process because I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, and uh, I, again, I thought I was going to medical school. So a, a lot of the, the early jobs that I took on was just because I was trying to be around healthcare. I mean, I worked in a pharmacy, uh, then I worked in a lab. Uh, and before I knew it, I was in my graduate internship at Mercy and now defining my professional career. Um, but from college to like that point, what I was doing was seeking information. I was seeking knowledge. Uh, so we talked about 
the sports a lot. One of the things that that really provided me was an opportunity to be mentored by people, but then also it allowed me to do it in an informal way where people were served as mentors for me and didn't even know it. They were just around. I'm super observant. So I'm observing everything. I'm observing people, mannerisms. I kind of, uh, you two know me. Uh, and so I kind of sit back. I don't really, you know, talk a lot unless it's a, a conversation I'm engaged in um, because I'm I'm just observing. I'm learning. I'm, I'm taking information and analyzing it and using it, whether it's to be a part of that conversation or, you know, just as a mental note. Uh, and so I did that from college all the way through. And so I was seeking opportunities to learn more, join my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, um, in hopes of learning more, being connected to, to different things that I wasn't aware of. Uh, but then also football opened up doors and clinical shadowing in Birmingham uh, during my time at Jacksonville State, uh, you know, networking with brothers in Atlanta and all these different things. Uh, it really provided me uh, a, a comprehensive experience I wouldn't have been able to get anywhere else. But the reality is once I graduated, I still really didn't know. I just knew I was going to do this thing. I knew I had this background. And so I was looking for spaces in which I can insert myself and just continue to learn and grow. Uh, but because of that comprehensive experience and taking a deferment year and knowing I was only going to be out of school for a year, it really limited my opportunities. I was overqualified for a lot and nobody really wanted to give me a chance. And one thing I can truly say in all of my experience uh, is that, that um, the people that always showed up for me the most have been like uh, women mentors uh, and you, you know, take it a, another level uh, is specifically black women. Um, nurturing as mentors, giving me not only mentorship, but sponsorship as well. And I, I don't want to diminish the mentorship of other people in there um, because there, there's a lot, but thinking about the most impactful experiences with that mentorship and sponsorship um, was, I mean, by far Black women. Uh, my chief right now is a Black woman. My past uh, was uh, a black woman. Um, and so I look at those opportunities and it was just me seeking information to continuously grow. Um, and so I, I love continuous improvement and really transforming uh, who I am for the better. Uh, and so as part of that uh, journey, your professional journey uh, is a cornerstone to that. Right. Uh, so I really use that to, to really propel myself. And so uh, before I knew it, between my graduate preceptor, supervisors, and all these different things, I had a really comprehensive experience in healthcare. Um, I mean, I was working on a virtual care center uh, out in Chesterfield uh, as a graduate intern before it even opened. And it's like, I didn't even realize I was working on this huge monumental thing that didn't even exist in the country as an intern. Uh, and so seeing, you know, all the conversation around trends in healthcare, telehealth, digital health, um, back in you know 2012 uh, was was something that uh, really I had no real understanding. And uh, my preceptor at Mercy for my graduate internship, 
she, she says something that really resonates with me today. Um, she said, Michael, I have, I, I don't really have the ability to make a five-year plan in healthcare because who knew I would be the president of a hospital with no hospital beds when I started my journey. And so it's like, how do you even begin to be intentional looking at the long term in healthcare because it's changing so rapidly? And so the the one thing that was a positive in all of that is really just being intentional about seeking out information and allowing your purpose to guide you. And luckily for me, my you know gut instincts was that that driving force. But I know now. Uh, that that gut instinct was me really leaning into my purpose and my identity and what felt right. Man, um, fire emojis all around. Because uh, I got to say, bro, like, I'm we're sitting here, you know, talking with you as a director, but I'm like, this is how I want all of my executive leaders, you know, to talk in terms of kind of what guides you. And as young professionals now, um, it's ironic, you know, this is the healthcare hustle, but sometimes that hustle culture, so to speak, in terms of finding the next job or trying to find the right fit, it can actually be kind of destructive, I feel like, um, to, you know, some people's pathways. But one of the things that I feel like you have done, and Andrelli actually said this on our first episode, was to stay principled and stay focused in what centers you, right? And I want to kind of get into just the wide array of experiences you've had in the industry, because I feel like you have touched on every single piece from advocacy to policy to you know direct care to sitting on the administration side um and i want you to kind of go into like you know what were some of those experiences that you felt really kind of got you into the industry and you said okay like i'm here and i can shake things up whether it was you know your yes on to work or at you know um the ihn you know any of those things if you if you wanted to speak to them could you um there's man these these questions are great <laughs> i appreciate the the intentionality with a lot of these questions because uh, i think me coming into my own as a healthcare leader wasn't until i joined nasi uh, actually um going into that first conference i think my first conference was san antonio uh and so seeing other leaders seeing other people in the space i was like oh i can authentically be myself and still navigate this world in a way that feels genuine to me. And when I when I came upon that, it really shaped how I thought about my work a lot differently. However, thinking about all of the experiences that I've had, it shaped my perspective on healthcare up until that point. And so talking about my early experiences at Pond Line Clinic, talk, thinking about my family and the equities that exist in my family. I mean, I can go down the list. It's like my stepdad passed from cancer, uh, had a, you know, uncle die from drug overdose, had, you know, uh, family battling with uh, lifelong HIV, um, other chronic illnesses, you know, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart failure, all these different things. This is existing in my family. And so when we, when I, when I talk about, you know, my experiences now on the formal side of it, I realize that this is not just an issue my family is experiencing. And so thinking about the cost of prescription medications, I was on the front line in a pharma, retail pharmacy, seeing the impact of people 
trying to figure out, you know, Medi Medicare Part D. What does this mean? What does what does this gap mean? What is these loopholes? Like, I I don't know what this means. Um, working in a lab, seeing the the implications on people's labs and trying to get them uh, expedited, trying to understand uh, what's happening to me, trying to get this to the doctor, having questions for me, I couldn't even answer. It's like, I don't know, I'm sending this to your physician, they'll, they'll follow up with you next. Um, but then getting into the corporate mission office at Mercy, seeing pastoral service, seeing the virtual care center, seeing support supply chain, seeing the business decisions and how that's connected to the history of this Catholic health system uh, and how that really is quality improvement of access, of uh, reduced costs for patients, driving driving value for patients, uh, working. I, I worked on ICU, uh, uh, in the ICU, neurotrauma, uh, trauma units, all these other things as well, meeting with patients, trying to make sure that they understand the, the financial implications of their, their hospital visit. If they qualify, uh, if they had a disabling, you know, situation is like, are you uninsured? Do you qualify for Medicaid? Can we get you help? And that obviously had re reimbursement implications on the hospital. But what I was seeing was there were so many people that were struggling with the realities of health and well-being and that the healthcare system could not began to address the issues that were really at the root of a, a lot of these things that were happening. I mean, I had a, a, a parent lose a job right before their, you know, daughter had a life-changing chronic illness, and they were uninsured. Hospital bill ended up, by the time they left the hospital, hospital bill was somewhere in like 1.5 million, like something crazy, right? Obviously, they weren't going to get that bill, but that's the reality that people are living with, that they're having life-changing situations, whether it be because of, you know, things they control or they can't control, genetic, whatever the case may be. And so when I, you know, fast forward to IHN and being charged with some of the uh, issues or challenges that came out of the murder of Michael Brown, it really changed my perspective on those issues where uh, Bethany, you know, now at Deaconess Foundation, uh, you know, she came back and said, we can't have health equity without racial equity. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's true. Uh, I mean, then when you dive uh, into the data and look at all uh, the different identities that people come into healthcare with, it's like, we have to acknowledge that. I mean, the uh, the IHI defined quality a long time ago. Uh, I mean, what, 1999, 2000? And it was safe, timely, efficient, effective. But for some reason, over the last 20 plus years, we left out equitable and patient-centered. And patient-centeredness is really knowing the identities of your patients and integrating that into their care delivery, whether that's their religion and faith, whether that's their race, ethnicity, whether that's, you know, the communities and socioeconomic status, their education level. And now, you know, post-affordable care act, we're focused on that. And for me, being able to be in the policy work, working on Medicaid expansion, advocacy and community, all these different things, 
it again was a comprehensive experience for me to be able to be where I am today. And so that's why that, you know, that purpose driven leaning into uh, that, that purpose and the, the, val the values you hold are so important important because you never know how you use those experiences and your perception of those experiences. Uh, and so now for me, I get to take all that learning from St. Louis and apply it to uh, a health system and in a community that is identical in nature because the plight of uh, marginalized people don't change because of the location change, it's just the context in which they happen change. Uh, and so I, uh, it, it really has been a unique journey that has really positioned and primed me as a young leader uh, in a space where uh, it, it's not very kind to young leaders and people that are trying to disrupt the status quo. Uh, and so it's like people are always shocked to find out I'm 32. <laughs> so it's like, no, nah, I started this work in a very intentional way, which accelerated uh, my experience. And then you couple, you know, my education and some of those more institutional uh, learning journeys in that. It's like, now I've been doing this work a lot longer than professionals who have been here. Uh, and so because of that, uh, I, you know, I have a voice and because of, you know, Nasi and, uh, and, and other relationships with professionals, it's like, I'm not going to quiet that voice because it's like, if I, if you have a different opinion than me, it's like, show me the evidence, show me how you come to that conclusion. And then we can have a conversation about that. But the, the moral case is already there. The business case uh, is there. And I get to talk about it and disrupt it every day. And so those experiences uh, have helped me. And that's why I say this work is my humanity, because these are my communities. That's, that's amazing you said. That's well said. Um, there's a lot, I think, to unpack there. Um, but I do, and, you know, as we talk, I do, I do think of, um, being an agent of change and, and addressing these these barriers around health equity and, and being in the position that you're in now, um, given the fact that you've had so many experiences that contribute to um, your efforts in making changes, not only on the on the local level or on the micro level, but on the macro level, like you had mentioned earlier. And I think um, as young professionals, we all have that goal going in. We want to be those agents of change. We want to make a difference. And so just, you know, given your experience, what are some of the things that you see um, health systems do um, that really do impact the communities, that really do kind of address the, the health barriers and, and kind of involve in community engagement? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot happening and, and there's a lot to unpack with that question because every health system is different. But one of the things I, I want people to really understand is health systems are full of people that want to do good work. Uh, I think healthcare is one of the spaces where everyone is well-intentioned because we know the implications of our decisions every day are life or death. Whether it's the person cleaning the room or you know that you know C-suite executive, uh, whether it's that volunteer or whether it's you know that that retired board member that's providing governance, every single person knows that uh, the work that's being done in and throughout uh, healthcare organizations are impacting and changing lives. And so there's a lot of feel good there. Uh, and so with that being said, the things that are happening uh, are vast. 
Uh, and so we talk about health inequities and how communities are really similar, that that context that makes them different is really, really important. Um, and so one of the things here uh, is, that I see is a lot of the, the similarities from St. Louis, for example, is St. Louis is uh, a predominantly uh, Black African-American city. Los Angeles is a predominantly Hispanic Latino community. And so a lot of the inequities that exist, whether it's in the work force or whether it's in patient outcomes are pretty much the same. Uh, but you need to make sure you're elevating people's voice. You need to recruit, retain, you need to engage with community leaders uh, in and throughout uh, the, the region. And I see hospital systems doing that. And I'm specifically going to say hospital systems. Uh, and I see a lot of them moving towards impact, uh, impactful investment and impact investment. Uh, and so you see them using their reserves, uh, their financial reserves in a way that can contribute to the health and well-being of communities. You see them really diving deep into uh, community health needs assessments and having a strategy tailored around that. Uh, the murder of George Floyd highlighted the inequities that exist with just the Black voice and experience uh, and at a multitude of levels. And now you see health systems now creating offices of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, you see them establishing strategies, uh, integrating anti-racism, anti-bias into their strategy, allowing it to be foundational to their business decisions. And that's that's what inclusion should look like. Uh, but now we're talking about whose voices are at those tables, who who's included in those conversations? What does that look like? Um, can we have somebody help guide us through this process? Because uh, equity, diversity, inclusion work isn't just a Black experience, but we see the trend being a lot of Black people in these positions. But um, I think that's a positive because we see all the discrimination that exists in this country has its roots in anti-blackness. Like that's that's the reality of this country is capitalism on down to any other system is propelled by anti-blackness from the slave trade. Uh, and so that's not up for debate. That's the reality of and how this country operates. And so seeing uh, black voices be elevated where they can advocate for other people uh, has been uh, an advantage to uh, that that opportunity. Uh, and so just going back to the original question about what's happening is you see community voice being centered. You see organizations trying to move to a more uh, intentional and tactical approach to health equity. Uh, and you see people talking about it now. Is uh, I remember, uh, I, I think both of you know Rick Mason and uh, the work that he did at Children's Hospital. Got to have a conversation with him a, a long time ago, and he talked about Black uh, maternal health uh, and infant mortality. Uh, and that conversation him and I had was over seven years ago. Um, but now, we're seeing that elevator, we're seeing documentaries about it, we're seeing data, we're seeing how Black women in America are experiencing death uh, during pregnancy, uh, twice the rates of uh, all other countries, and it's, it's just unacceptable. And so I think what we are now moving towards is what the uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act intended, was us to be really intentional about our data 
data, be really intentional about our tools, be really intentional about the decisions that are being made in order to advance a more inclusive healthcare system that allows people to not only get the accessible, affordable quality care, but also have an opportunity to thrive beyond those hospital walls, having that, that health system be in community with the school systems, with employers, with uh, community-based organizations and non-for-profit, really advancing those social factors that contribute to health, those political factors that contribute to health. And so that's where I see a lot of institutions going, some further along in that journey than others. Uh, but Fortunately for UCLA Health, I'm here, my chief is here, and we're going to continue to do this work in an intentional way. Um, but uh, UCLA, our office is an inaugural office. It's a post-George Floyd office. While this work existed um, and people were doing the work, now we can do it in a more intentional way and make sure that we can hold the organization accountable uh, to these uh, these things. And so um, it, it's, it's beautiful uh, and there's a lot more work to be done, but uh, I would, you know, just share uh, with the world, Brandon, that it, healthcare, uh, like many other places, but healthcare especially, though, although it's a rapidly evolving system, that change really takes time. We're talking about a long-term investment uh, because there's so many moving parts, there's so much complexity, and, and it, while we can blame people's healthcare behavior or health healthy behaviors. Uh, the, the reality is it's all interconnected to these systems of how we educate, how we inform, how we build trust. I mean, trust is a, a huge piece of that, right? Um, and how we get away from uh, the anti-Blackness or the scientific uh, medical racism that has um, been so uh, pronounced for so long in healthcare. This is, oh man. You know, audience, this is why I, I would call Mike a young OG um for a while because <laughs> he sounds so sagacious with all his wisdom. Um, but you know, he's only 32. You're only 32, bro. That is it is it is ridiculous. Um, and you you just hit on a lot, very succinct. One of the questions, but you already addressed it in my opinion, that I was gonna ask is, you know, um, yes, post-George Floyd era. I'm also in an office like that as well at my institution, right? Um, BJC Healthcare. And one of the things that, you know, I've been able to observe, it's just like, you know, there's a balance to be, you know, held sometimes between maintaining the success of the business, i.e. growth in healthcare and, you know, making things more efficient and cutting costs, but then also trying to actually positively disrupt. Um, so can you just speak to how you feel about that? Maybe, I don't know if there's tension, if that's the right word, um, between, you know, making sure you have you know, your feet in both doors, you're speaking to the business and that impact, but then you're also speaking to like, legit, this is what we need to do for the sake of our humanity. Yeah. Uh, I, this is where I am extremely confident. Uh, and I, I, I almost said the word arrogance and full transparency to all the, the listeners, but I think it, in order to do this work well, you have to be bold, you have to be audacious, you have to be fearless because health healthcare business decisions are 
many times reactionary. Uh, I think uh, COVID really showed us that. Uh, and so when thinking about the moral and business case, especially moving forward post-COVID, hospital systems, hospital, healthcare organizations, FQHCs, along the entire health continuum of what we call the U.S. health system, they have a lot of tough decisions to make. And Winston, we talked about this in like the, the pre-conversation uh, before we, we started officially recording, but there, there's nobody that's going to come save you. And so you're looking at uh, the, those back balance sheets, you're looking at a lot of red numbers for this fiscal year. Uh, that's going to look the exact same next fiscal year. Your census in your system is still going to be tight. Uh, if not, uh, you're over capacity for the foreseeable future. And you can't go start building new hospitals. You're not going to open up new facilities. So what are you going to do? Uh, and so that's the decision that's needs to be made. Um, and I think, you know, every hospital system is working at a labor deficit. There, there's people leaving the system because they just don't have that conviction and purpose uh, for doing this. Uh, then you got to layer on the, the, the interactions between our clinicians and caregivers with community. Violence has increased in healthcare systems at a significant rate where it's just unsafe for people. Layer on racism in that, you get what you get ha happen in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, it's just, this is the reality we're existing within. And if we are slow to act, you are seeing a dying institution. Uh, and so with that, as, as leaders, we have to look at the long game, look at what do we want our legacy to be as leaders, because we didn't make these decisions that brought us to this point, or at least, you know, all of us didn't. But the, the reality is, it's like, all right, the moral case has always been there. That has been there since the, the formation of this country. It's like, it's like, I don't need to talk about the moral case anymore. And so what I'm going to do is talk about the business case. I'm going to talk about why you need to diversify your workforce, why you need to engage and empower your workforce to be problem solvers on the, the front lines. I'm going to talk to you about why health equity, investing in community, uh, creating access to healthy foods, providing education programs, extending mental health services, and overhauling how we build financial models for mental and behavioral health services, because a lot of insurance companies just don't cover it. Uh, we uh, need to talk about what does communication and trust even look like to even re-engage our patients in a way that they even feel we're making the best decisions on behalf of them. I mean, we're still having conversations about the vaccine and whether to trust it or not. Um, these are the business decisions that we have to make. And some of those things are uh, tangible, but a lot of them are intangible. A lot of them are predicated and are rooted in your organizational culture and how you're delivering value to patients and communities. Uh, and so when you talk about walking that line, I don't think there's a line to walk. It's, it's, this is the reality of which we're existing in. Living in Los Angeles, we're already uh, a minority majority state with Los Angeles 
being overwhelmingly people of color. I, 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 and I despise the word minority because it, it marginalized people even more. But um, with that being said, you have a community that is majority people of color. And so because of that, you need to understand how to care for people of color in an intentional way um, that doesn't further marginalize them, no matter what the race, ethnicity, language spoken is. Uh, and that trend is going to continue to exist and persist for decades to come. And we see it first on the coast and it's slowly going to come inward uh, more and more. And so while we can't at UCLA help wait any longer because it's here. There's, you know, institutions all throughout the, the heartland of the country, the middle of the country, when you get off the coast, that are privileged to not have to make those decisions right away. Or those policies can be argued as state capitals. And you can see the resistance from politicians, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on. Um, but after so long, you're going to see people that are representing communities and workforce and in the uh, and in in state capitals that look like the communities. And so it's slowly gonna change, but that business imperative doesn't mean, uh, or let me backtrack a little bit, that business imperative isn't going away. So the reality is, yeah, that moral case is there, but you're just gonna continue to lose money if you don't tend to what communities are asking. Oh, I, I love that, um, you know, redefining the business because this is the business. Um, mm -hmm. you know, is is something that is a powerful thought for me. Um, you know, so we are we are close to time and you have really given us so much wisdom. Um, you know, just in wrapping up, one of the things that we like to do with each of our guests is just um to, you know, give you the platform to share any advice or, you know, out of all the things that you've already shared, um, any specific advice for, you know, people who are looking to really be um, you know, in your shoes one day, you know, and are and are on this journey towards health equity. In my shoes one day. That, wow, that's uh, I'm honored to to hear that. Really, um, I be yourself. Uh, I I would recommend everyone be themselves. It's like you don't have to sugarcoat your identity for anyone. Uh, I think professionalism intact is a reality too. Uh, it's like, but that that professionalism and that that tactfulness doesn't have to be rooted in whiteness. Uh, and so, it, like, hold on to your identity, allow your humanity to guide you, allow your purpose to guide you, look for experiences, be intentional uh, in uh, seeking experiences and knowledge, uh, and just understand uh, that we're only going to move as far in this world as you decide to move us. And so if everyone carries that understanding, then we can continue to move the world forward, especially in healthcare. But if you're hopeless, if you feel powerless, whether you're you know, a CEO or a student just starting this journey, then we're never gonna get anything done. Um, and so having that hope intersect with that skill, expertise, that stick-to-itness, uh, that th that'll be that intersection where we begin to see impactful change. 
Uh, so I say continue to lean into who you are. Don't go finding spaces where you're hoping to fit. It's like, no, these spaces exist. And if they don't exist, create them. Ownership is the next opportunity and horizon for a lot of uh, marginalized populations in healthcare. Uh, again, healthcare is roughly 20% or 25% of our GDP. A lot of money to be made to change the way this system looks and feels for many people. And if it's not a space for your ideas and your vision, go create it. Uh, and so disrupt where you are, but then also uh, integrate disruptive innovation in there. Uh, and whether that's for an institution or, you know, for a startup or whatever else uh, was is in your vision, but there's a lot that can be done. It's just, but it, it has to start with people being authentic and genuine with themselves. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Um, for coming on to the show. Um, is there anywhere in particular, any social media platforms that any of our listeners may be able to follow you, connect with you to see what you're up to? And I am the worst on social media. When it comes to being a millennial, I think I'm, <laughs> that's where I like begin to be anti. Uh, but LinkedIn, uh, I'm gonna, once I'm finished with this doctorate, I'm gonna be more engaged on LinkedIn. Uh, my office is in the process of writing a lot of white papers and uh, sharing about our processes because we've done a lot uh, since the installation of this office. Uh, and there's a, a lot to be said uh, and shared with the rest of the world to help leaders and people on their journeys. Um, and so uh, LinkedIn uh, is the, the easiest space to connect with me. Please, you know, connect, reach out, ask questions. Any students, I, I do, you know, informational interviews and connect with students because it's important. I never had that. And so any student that's ever reached out to me has always gotten a meeting. Um, I'm always going to be accessible uh, because that's, that's an important part of this journey as well, because, I mean, we need each other in order to impart change. And so, yeah, LinkedIn, stop there. And then one of these days, I'll be an influencer on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, but it won't be any time in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> got you, got you. Well, Mike, thanks for um, coming on the show, man. We appreciate you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Well, that's it for the episode. And we want to thank you for listening to the Healthcare Hustle podcast. Make sure to check us out each month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and stay up to date with the Healthcare Hustle fam by following our page on LinkedIn. The marathon continues, so keep on hustling.